Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is appraiser Ryan Lundquist, the author of the Sacramento Appraisal Blog, to talk about what he's seeing in his local market in inventory, prices, and bidding wars. Hi, I'm McKenna Clay, Events and Program Specialist here at HW Media, and I wanted to invite you to our upcoming event this summer. A theme we've heard from housing leaders this year is the importance of relationships to not only survive, but be strategic in 2023. And that's why we decided to invite the top C-suite executives and leaders in mortgage to join us at Gathering of Eagles in Austin, Texas from June 18th until 21st. Now, Gathering of Eagles has historically been exclusive to the nation's most elite brokerage, association and team leaders, and C-suite leaders. But for the first time this year, we're opening up the audience to include execs from mortgage, title, and insurance so that you can connect and build vital partnerships for your business. If you want to learn more, visit the events page on realtrends.com and you can get registered today to come hang out with us in Austin. Ryan, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here. It is always great to have you on. I like catching up with what's going on in your corner, very important corner of California and Sacramento. And also, I just feel like you um, you talk to a lot of uh, realtors, home buyers, home sellers, and other appraisers. So I feel like you really have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. And I love that local mar- market knowledge. And I think it's indicative of what's going on in a lot of other markets too. No. Oh yeah. No. Thanks for the kind words. And it's amazing actually, when you see how close and how similar different markets are across the country. So can't wait to dive in today. Well, great. Um, well, let's talk a little bit. You've been in Sacramento. You've been an appraiser there for um, more than uh, about 20 years, right? That's right. Yeah. So you've seen it all. Tell me what you think about this market. Like what is going on? We are in a really weird market. It's like, um, it almost feels like a relationship that um, is, has been struggling, but it just went on vacation. And so it's starting to feel really good at the moment, but there's these deep underlying problems still. And so, you know, we, we're really struggling with affordability. We're still missing over you know, about one third of the buyers from, from a normal um, seasonal trend. And so we're missing a lot in Sacramento, but, you know, we're in this market that feels like utter chaos. And so, well, um, on one hand, we've had six months in a row in Sacramento County where we've had literally our worst volume ever. Okay. And so it's uh, worse than 2007. And so, you know, on paper, you would look at the number of sales happening and think that it was a total buyer's market, but you know, it really feels like 2020, you know, in terms of competition, it's really, really fierce out there. Um, we've had more pendings and listings now for, um, you know, the last couple of months. And, you know, it just felt very chaotic and very unnatural, I think, as sellers have stepped back from the market. But it's not at all what you would expect, you know, with 2000 sales vibes, but with 2020 competition, it's it's quite the weird combination. That is a weird combination. And it's just one of those things where like people are like, are prices going up or down? Is there competition? And I know it's so, so very specific to markets. But do you feel like that's because there's just so little inventory or because you have so much demand? Like, where is that coming from? 
Well, so it's a, it's a weird moment in um, the housing market, I think for Sacramento and a lot of places, because it's almost like low demand and low supply have met. And so I think a lot of people see this trend and we're like, we're back, baby, you know, everything's normal. And I think, no, that's absolutely false. You know, what we're experiencing is a market where we're still missing a lot of buyers due to affordability. I mean, just look at the mortgage applications. They're still down about 30% from normal. And, and so we clearly don't have, you know, a regular amount of buyers participating. You know, but at the same time, it feels ultra competitive because this year in Sacramento, um, January through March, we've had 45% fewer listings compared to last year. And so, and last year was already low. And so it's just like, it's almost like you take half the listings out of the market and then all of a sudden you have a limited pool of buyers and then it, it feels very, very aggressive, you know? And so um, there's a lot of stories, I think, of multiple offers, you know, it, it, you know, appraisal um, contingencies being removed, you know, sort of 2020 vibes in that regard, like not not as bad as early 2022 when it was an utter bloodbath. But I think being next to the fall market, the fall market really felt like an ice bath. And now it feels like a bloodbath. And so it's really, really changed and flipped. And I think a lot of people are looking at that going, I don't get it, you know, but Here's the thing. We should be having a seasonal market right now. Okay. A seasonal market in Sacramento even happened in 2007. I think a lot of people looking on housing, they're like, we should be going down. No, like no markets. Actually, there's more attention on the market during the spring. So this is exactly what we should be seeing, except it's on steroids right now in the, the trend anyway, because of the, the dynamics we mentioned. Do you see any particular price point being much more competitive than others? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd say, hands down, uh, the bottom half of the market, the median price right now in, in Sacramento is about you know, 560 um, to 570. And so really under that price point um, is a bloodbath, but in particular under 500,000 and even more than that, under 400,000, it's really, really tough. I mean, you're talking like you're going to have probably twice as many if not more pendings compared to active listings. And so, you know, there's a lot of buyers right now who are shopping at lower prices because you think last year prices really went down from the summer. They're still down. We're not back to those peak levels. But what it's done is it, it's really pushed a lot of buyers to shop at lower prices. And so you have a lot more buyers today who are competing at lower levels. And so it's just, it's a very, very crowded market. Um, and then we even had the California Dream for All loan where, there's this shared appreciation loan that came out and it, it's sort of like worst possible timing ever. I mean, I'm happy for buyers who took advantage of it and if that's a good situation for them. But um, it was sort of like, uh, I think, throwing fuel on the fire locally. And Sacramento actually had more of those loans than any other county in the state. And so it's like we have 4% of the population in Sacramento County, but we had 11% of those loans that were available. And this whole program, they were like, yeah, it'll last a few months. And it, it ran out in basically about 10 days. That is crazy. I saw that on your blog. Um, tell our audience a little bit about what that loan is like, because, you know, obviously it's just California. So love to get some more context. Yeah. So it's a sort of a, a loan that, um, you know, can create a lot of controversy online. Um, and the idea is, is it uh, Cal HFA will give up to 20% for a down payment. And, um, and the real advantage is that that 20% that you're not paying interest on whatever percentage they give you. And so, it, I mean, essentially, buyers could actually shop at a lower price. Okay. But here's, you know, the fine print, the asterisk 
asterisk is it you're going to um, share the appreciation. I can't remember the exact percent. It was 20 to 25% maybe of whatever the appreciation would be on top of you know the loan amount when you go to sell. And if there's not any appreciation, then there's nothing to share. You know, But yeah, definitely a lot of controversy regarding this loan. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it was here. Well, and it it seemed to um, you know move some people off the sidelines. They're like, okay, well, if I'm if I'm going to do it, let me do it now. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think a lot of people at the time were saying that oh, the market's just hot because of the dream for all loan. And I'd say no, no, the market really hit an inflection point about two weeks before this loan came. And um, and since the loan ended, I mean, the stats are just as crazy. Um, what I started to notice that there was an abnormal amount of multiple offers, a percentage of multiple offers in mid March. It was sort of hovering around normal and then all of a sudden it spiked. And so I think what happened is that we hit this point where, you know, this inflection point where there were just not enough listings um, compared to pendings, compared to sales. And, and, you know, the market responded just ultra competition. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about sellers because it seems like um, they're in a good spot. But um, I know from your blog that some of them, they're still waiting for the, what, what do you call it? The Bay Area unicorn buyer. So they're going to, you know, price it at some crazy level. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's always the dream in Sacramento. I'm sure every market has this. Like in Florida, it's going to be, you know, the New York cash buyer or, you know, everywhere else in the USA, it's that California buyer. Sorry, I know that's us. Um, not me though. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in our area, the sort of the expected buyer, the dream is to have the Bay Area unicorn. And, you know, look, in recent years, we had more migration from the Bay Area. It looks like it's sort of tapered off. Um, you know, but the the danger is, is that people fixate so heavily on like, I'm just going to price my house at, you know, this obscene level, and then I'm going to attract this unicorn. And, you know, it's just exactly the wrong thing that you need to see in a market where it feels really nuts right now. Buyers are still very picky about paying the right price. And so they're not, you know, out there offering 20% above value because that's really, really expensive to do. Um, in most cases, they're not doing that. So even when there's multiple, um, you know, bidding situations, multiple bids, you're not seeing it go to that level? Okay, so multiple bids are interesting because sometimes properties are priced too low. So I just talked to an agent and um, they had something like 30 offers on the property. And um, it went, um, it, it was something like 430 to about 500,000. And, you know, the thing is, I, I asked the agent, well, what do you think it was worth? And, you know, the agent said it was worth, I think, around 470 or so. And so, you know, some properties are strategically priced too low. And so when they get so many offers, we always have to ask this one question, is it the market or is it the marketing? Right. And, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of both. Um, I mean, buyers are definitely, they have been going, I would say, above value because, and um, like the price change between March and April, it's going to be steeper um, just because the market's been really aggressive. We're starting to get closed sales from that inflection point I talked about, and it's going to be more aggressive. I think it's going to raise some eyebrows. you know, but it, it's sort of that dynamic where there's very, very little on the market. So when you talk about, you know, is it market, is it the market or is it the marketing as an appraiser and you come in and you look at, oh, you know, they kind of priced it low. It got run up. How do you, how do you find the, the sweet spot there? 
That's always the, the issue, right? Um, you know, where is the market in the midst of the insanity? And in some locations across the country, you have um, strategically, you know, low pricing as a norm. And so I think appraisers have to be really careful to say, I'm not going to judge the original list price. Okay. It got in a contract. There were 20 offers, you know, way above, you know, at this high level. And then I just have to say, what story do the comps tell? You know, what do I see, especially in the pendings and the listings? Okay, the comps got in a contract months ago, the stuff that sold in November and December, that's ancient history. What is the market like right now? I want to look for a group of pending contracts that tells the story of value, and maybe I need to adjust those sales up. But I, I find that too, that we are sort of experiencing that no man's land sometimes where these properties get bid up and there, there's just no support at that level. Um, you know, something where it's especially the some of the dream for all buyers that, you know, they're basically getting, you know, 20% down for free. And when you're not spending your own money, you know, and someone gives you money to gamble, you're probably going to like go a little crazy at the casino. And, and I think some of that happened. And so I think at least in that, those situations, the uh, appraisal as a tool to sort of, um, you know, bring that back down to reality to say, hey, you know, time out, we you know, that, that's not realistic. No, I love that. Um, what are you seeing as far as days on market? So um, about half of the properties are getting into contract in about seven days or fewer. Um, days on market sort of flirting on average with about 30 days. Um, and so it, it's not like it was in 2021 and 2022, but um, it's been over the past couple months, kind of a sharp downtrend um, as we, we had a lot of leftover stuff from the fall with huge days on market, but now you're getting the stuff that's closing um, much faster. And, and it's been a pretty like, pretty sharp downtrend, um, the line anyway, I can see the graph in my mind right now. And so um, it's starting to, it's almost going to cross over like norm, pre-pandemic normal levels to, you know, selling more quickly. And so I'm anxious to see, you know, what happens there. You know, our lead analyst, Logan Motoshami, uh, he looks at the spring home buying season as really ending after, after May. I mean, after a certain point, right? Like, um, you're going to see things, you know, start to slow down. Not that people don't buy, but just like the spring, you know, kind of, kind of what we want to see in the increase. Is that true in Sacramento? Like what, how do you define like this is, should be the busier season and, and what are the parameters around that? Yeah, no, it really is true. I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about real estate that, you know, the, the hottest time of the market's the summer. And that's not true. It's, it's true with the sun beating down. Um, it's, it's terrible in Sacramento sometimes. Okay. I love Sacramento, but oh my gosh, last summer, 110 degrees plus oh too many days. It was absurd. Let's do something different this summer. <laughs> but anyway, so in our market, we tend to see, um, like clockwork, multiple offers. The percentage of multiple offers sort of hits their peak, usually around April, actually. Um, sometimes, sometimes in May, sometimes even in, in March. Um, but the number of sales peaks, and usually prices peak in June. And what that tells us is that you know these properties close in June, but they actually got into contract probably in May or late April. And so right now, what we want to be watching for is sort of a traditional seasonal peak. Um, and you know, and parse through all the hype out there in real estate, the doom and gloom, the rosy stuff, and just watch for that seasonal pattern. Okay, we've had sort of a normal season that you know with an extra injected stare lately, but we should start to see things begin to taper off. Um, you just don't see it in the stats for a couple of months. 
Usually until July, you start to see days on market slow down. But really, the slowing starts to happen somewhere around April, May, you know, and then it takes a bit to get in the stats. So tell me about the home, home builders in your area, home building. Is, is it a big area for that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we have the resale market and then home builders typically might build about 5,000 extra homes. Um, you know, 7,000 maybe the last couple of years. The last couple of years were monster years, but um, it's sort of about 15% extra, you know, to the resale market. And so it's definitely big. Um, but in our, in our area, builders were getting destroyed since the market shifted last year. I mean, you know, their contract volume was down about 50% for months and months in a row. And um, it looked really ugly. But one thing that happened at, at um, the very end of last year, there was sort of a fire sale and they're giving properties away. But um, but what we've seen in the stats in February and March so far in the Sacramento region is what I'm hearing nationally and seeing in other markets is that there's been a real rebound with new construction. And so in March, for instance, in Sacramento, it was the second strongest March in the past 10 years. Okay, Even when considering 2020, 21, 22, um, this is a really strong March, and which is wild to see because in the resale market with the older homes, we're having our worst volume ever, right? And so I think what's happening with builders is that they have gotten really, um, I would say, good at offering concessions, buying down the mortgage rate, um, sometimes reducing their prices. I mean, their goal, they want to have that price as high as possible. You know, buyers can resist that if they want, of course. But what they've done is that they've started, they found a way to get buyers back in the pipeline, you know, through enticing them through concessions of, of all different kinds. And so sometimes I talk to buyers and, you know, they might get a 4.99% rate with $20,000 for closing costs or a different buyer that I talk to, about a seven hundred thousand dollar home, you know, they said a concession around sixty five thousand dollars. So that seemed a little much to me, and you know, um, but you know, that's what they told me. But I'm, I'm hearing these stories, you know, all over the place. And you know, meanwhile, in the resale market, you start to see sellers not have to offer as many concessions. But it's just, it's a different story in new construction right now. It really is. I remember, um, you know, in 2021, I think it was Austin where, um, you know, a builder was just like breaking ground, like they didn't have any models up, they had nothing. And there were people waiting, camping, waiting to talk to them about lots before they had, you know, had any houses for sale. And I was like, this is a crazy market. So I don't think it's like that. But it is far no. from normal. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what a sad commentary on housing and people camping out. And I guess it's good publicity, you know, that local media is going to, you know, take photos and the market's crazy, you got to get in. But um, it just shouldn't be like that. You know, can you imagine doing that, you know, buying food at the store or right. buying a car? I mean, uh, we're buying shelter, yeah. you know, it just it just seems so off. It does seem off. So, what do what are first time homebuyers doing in your area? Okay, besides the uh, the Dream for All program, what what are some of the options that they have? So, I think FHA has definitely been an option. Um, this past quarter, the first quarter, we actually saw an uptick in FHA, and it's sort of what's been happening with you know conventional financing becoming a little more expensive. 
And it almost seems like financing is sort of trying to position first-time buyers to jump in the market. Whether that's good or bad, people debate all day long about that. Twitter can get ugly over that. That's fine. But, you know, it's what's been happening lately. Um, you know, but I will say this, that um, sometimes, I, I mean, I am anxious to see what happens with FHA financing because it's become so brutal again in the trenches that FHA sometimes isn't, the buyers aren't bringing, you know, a lot of money down. And so it becomes more difficult for them to compete, despite, I, I think that, you know, that we were seeing this increase. And so, you know, we'll see what happens there. But hey, there's a lot of attention on on the market. Um, a lot of first time buyers are getting things done. About 80% of our market is um, owner occupied. About 20% are investors. And so, um, you know, and and interestingly enough, about um, 80% of the market, 82% of the market is um, financed. And so, you know, that kind of lines up with that stat, even though that's not totally correlated. But the vast bulk of the market locally is financed. Buyers are clearly, you know, getting it done and finding ways to make it work. Do you, have you seen a, a pretty big uptick in the number of ADUs or people starting ADUs? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I actually talked with someone this morning who called me and they were worried. They said, you know, I'm just worried that we, our ADU won't appraise, you know, high enough for us to get financing. And, you know, we talked for a little bit and she said, I'm a part of an ADU group. And, you know, people were complaining in the Facebook threads that these ADUs cost $200,000 to build. And then the appraiser says it's worth 50000 or whatever. And so I was like, well, you know, let me turn around the question and ask if you were the buyer, how much would you pay for this ADU? And I think that's the reasonable question. And you know what the answer is? It's probably not what it cost at 200000 And so the ADU is a marathon asset that's going to, you know, produce rent or, you know, whatever the reason is why the person got it for decades ahead, presumably. And when a buyer is sprinting to the market, they're not going to pay for the whole marathon. Okay. It's like that with solar or a pool or, I mean, anything really. And so, you know, maybe appraisers sometimes can get better at adjustments as we have more data. But, um, you know, there's no mistaking that, you know, I said, you know, prepare that it's probably not going to be anywhere near what it costs because that's sort of, I think, the psyche of buyers where buyers are at, you know, let's argue with the buyers. I mean, they're not willing to pay it. So, Ryan, I wanted to also ask you about some appraisal news, right? We've had lots of that this year. And one of the biggest things is that there are now seemingly more options for valuation than just, you know, your traditional appraisal. And would love to get your take on that as an appraiser and as someone who's working in that field. Yeah, yeah. It seems like uh, everyone and their mom's making decisions uh, for appraisers without appraisers at the table. <laughs> it seems how it's going. But um, I'll say this, objectively speaking, there's a place for different products and different models um, in any single profession. And the same thing is true in the appraisal space and valuation. What should happen is that as technology and efficiency improves, it should change how appraisals are done. Like I'm not denying that at all. I am pretty concerned about, I think, the model with a hybrid model. Um, you know, who are the inspectors? What type of training do they have? Um, I guess it, it's sort of the irony to me is that, you know, for so many you know, decades, um, trainee appraisers who have, uh, who have had a license and education and who are being trained by supervisory appraisers, they haven't been allowed to inspect the property alone for a loan. And so here we are saying we will use non-licensed data collectors, 
that haven't had a background check, presumably. I mean, hopefully they will. And, you know, and so it almost feels like an insult, I think, to the appraisal space, um, you know, and almost like this sense of where just trust us, this is big data. And, and I back up just there's that human element where I go, why have lenders not allowed trainees this whole time? I think in some senses, that's kept the profession back. Because of those rules, there needs to be some changes there. But um, yeah, just the whole thing, just it, that part rubs me the wrong way. Even though I can see where there's a need for, you know, different types of models in the appraisal space, um, you know, it just um, that kind of strikes me. But I think one thing to um, consider also is the fee structure. Um, I don't do appraisals for loans on purpose anymore. Um, you know, I just do private stuff. Um, I think this type of stuff is a nightmare. When I'm doing a private appraisal, I can make way more money doing a desktop valuation than, you know, what would be offered with the hybrid solution. And so it's like when you change the fee structure or the AMC structure or, you know, not allowing trainees to inspect, it's kind of a weird dynamic that I think has assisted in crippling the appraisal profession in terms of growth. I do think, I think, so one of the new options, right, you can do um, something that they used to call appraisal waivers, which is now value acceptance. And then um, you have value acceptance plus property data, which is to your point, those third third parties out there collecting data. And then if the, if you get approved for that and it comes in and, and something about the loan changes, then you have to actually send that to an appraiser and and it becomes sort of a desktop at that point, right? They call it a hybrid appraisal, but tell me a little bit about how that works. You know what? I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what value acceptance really means. Um, yeah. So I, I can't, I can't really speak to that. But um, I, I mean, I do like that. You know, you know that it's sort of like the Terminator thing. We we want the humans to be there and the machines and Chat GPT is going to take over all of us. You know, <laughs> but um, so. I'm a big fan of the humans um, getting to be involved on on some level, um, of course. Um, and and honestly, there's a place for appraisal waivers. Also, um, you know, I did a refi in 2020, and we weren't pulling any cash out. And what we were doing, I mean, it was such a minor uh, amount on the loan. It just it didn't make any sense for that rate change to have a, a, an appraiser come out. And so. There's a place for that. You know, it's just what we don't want to do is if we start to give that too much, like that's where it can become, I think, dangerous when appraisers don't get to play the role that they were intended to play, you know, or when we come to a place where we're like, we trust big data, bro. And big data is, you know, means everything to us. No, I think we need to critique and ask questions or even of, I know this is kind of off topic. I feel like such an edgy guy with this, but even with the appraisal waivers, what I would like to see is some data, you know, who is getting the waivers? You know, there's so much conversation about, you know, human appraisers and bias, particularly racial bias. Like, who is getting the appraisers? Who, what, uh, who is um, this, this system? Who is it showing advantage or disadvantage to? I think these are viable questions and we need to critique all models and we need to sort of, so run, you know, the human model and the machine model, you know, through the same set of questions to be sure that, you know, this really is helpful or efficient or, or good for consumers. It is such an uh, interesting issue that doesn't have a lot of easy answers, right? So um, you and I have talked about appraisal bias before, and and we'll come back to that again, I'm sure, in the future. But um, it is a great question, like, because we know that it depends on what you're feeding in, what you get out. And so, again, if you're using 
historical comps, this is always my question. How do you get away from baking in some of that uh, racial bias just by using historical comps? I think appraisers, particularly with um, choosing comps, you got to be aware of neighborhood boundaries. And if you make a neighborhood boundary so tight that you're not seeing the market, that could be problematic, right? And it goes both ways, high price points, low price points. If you define a neighborhood so tightly that you're all of a sudden missing value, then you've really missed the market. And then that's when we're not doing our job, okay? And that can happen at any price point, okay? Appraisers have to be careful of, you know, stuff like, you know, bias towards certain neighborhoods that, are not, that they're not familiar with. If I asked a bunch of residents to define the neighborhood, where would they draw the boundaries? And are, there's a lot of, re- lot of reasons why prices are different in neighborhoods and are appraisers the ones to pin the trend on trend on? I mean, that's, that's a big question, but I guess, you know, the last thing I'd say is that the irony is that here we are talking about appraisers and then, you know, who we're not talking about the architects of redlining, you know, lenders and banks and, you know, all the participants here. And here we are narrowing in on appraisers and I welcome the conversation. I'm glad for it. The best class I ever took as an appraiser was the one that's mandated in California about bias because that's, I want to cultivate neutrality in my practice and in my mindset. And it was so practical. It was so good. I welcome that. No, I think that's interesting. And I, you know, I write the appraisal newsletter and I think that you speak for a lot of appraisers who feel like they have been painted with a broad brush and they don't appreciate it. And they, and they say the same thing you do, which is like, okay, but you know, all of these things that happened weren't just on one, on one set of people. Well, my last question is about, you know, migration in and, out of, in and out of California. So you mentioned it early on. You're like, yeah, it's it's all those California buyers going other places. I know I have bought in Texas and in Colorado, and um, that was true of both of those places. Um, but also, you know, now that people have moved out from California, some people are moving back. And then you also always have, you know, some in-migration because of the weather and the opportunity there. So what are you seeing as far as California migration? Yeah. So first, migration stats are really stale. By the time they come out, I mean, they're they're so old. But um, so basically, the freshest stuff is mid-2022. And you can see, yeah, more people leaving than coming to the state. But um, the California Policy Lab shows, it, at least through 2021, um, 2020, 2020 through 2021, maybe that was 2019. Forgive me if I'm forgetting. But 1.9 million people left the state and about 1.4 million came. And so I think one of the things that's lost in all the narrative about everyone hates California, everyone's leaving, is that no people come to the state. Um, you know, no mistaking, we lost population. There has been heightened migration. Um, one of the interesting things that I saw, though, in the stats from the Public Policy Institute of California is that, you know, one of the things that happened over the past couple of years is you have uh, more high-income um, earners leaving the state also. And so it's sort of like um, lower income income and middle income were already sort of a sharp decline and then a higher income sort of met them also. And so, you know, that could change in the future. The market's always changing, but, um, you know, that's definitely something that, that I'm watching. Um, there's a ton of stories uh, about locals who are leaving the market. And one of the struggles with today is that sellers listing their homes. And I think we, we have a situation where, you know, sellers really have to have a lifestyle change in order to move. And one of those lifestyle changes, you know, moving up, moving down and such is happens to be leaving the state. 
you know, or, you know, going to a lower priced area. And so there's at least, there is some incentive there. I hear all the time about Californians still, you know, or Sacramentans leaving to Tennessee and Texas and, you know, all the usual suspects. And so um, what's going to be the next place? I, I think that's what someone needs to solve. That is what someone needs to solve. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for being on. Love getting the snapshot of your market. And we will have you on again in a couple months to see how spring home buying season went and and where you are then. But thank you so much. Oh, thanks. It's such an honor. Really appreciate this. We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all of the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack, and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax, and Home Services and incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.